0: Welcome to Reconceive with Deborah Cox and Tracy Maxfield. Over the next hour, Deborah, Tracy, and their guests will help you understand therapist burnout and how to feel better now. Listen close to bring vitality back to your practice. Now, here are Deborah and Tracy. Welcome to Reconceive. I'm Deborah.
1: And I'm Tracy. We want to talk about how therapists can benefit. From a little bit of understanding of polyvagal theory.
2: Right. And we are joined today by our friend, Paul Wickersham, who works here in the office with me. Um, We're going to introduce him a little bit further here in just a second. But I just want to say that um, everything is becoming more embodied. Everything that we do professionally, especially therapy, um, but even teaching, and um, any other kind of human service. We're paying more attention to the body now than ever. It's like we're waking up from generations of eschewing the body or ignoring it or just pretending that we don't have one. Um, So it makes sense to talk about polyvagal theory, which you've all heard about, but you might not have um, a a very um, clear understanding of and how it can help you as a helper feel better and and do better work.
1: So this is this is a theory that was invented by Stephen Porges and he was very surprised when clinicians, you know, mental health practitioners, body workers were the main people who seemed to be really interested in his work. Mm-hmm. He thought it would just stay in the realm of scientific documents. Uh, but mm-hmm. clinicians grabbed onto it and uh, have been using it, incorporating it into their practice.
2: Yeah.
1: And I want to thank Deborah. About six or seven years ago, she said, Do you know anything about polyvagal theory?
2: Oh, wow. Did I really?
1: You did. You introduced me to it. Uh. <laughs> I said, No. So I started reading <laughs> his. Dense book about polyvagal theory. I started that a year and a half ago. I'm still. I'm only halfway through it. It's, it's challenging. It's it is yeah. dense. Yes. But then I read his uh, pocket book, which is about the transform transformational power of safety. Ooh, yeah. But I, I wanted to thank Deborah, and then I saw Paul as a client, and. He has a graphic that is really very clearly shows polyvagal theory and how it works yeah. in our biobehavioral states. Right. So I wanted to say that it's changed my life. And I wrote down three ways that mainly it's changed my life in the way I practice. Uh, the first thing is don't ignore what your body is telling you. Mm -hmm. The second is seeking comfort slash safety is good for your health. Mm -hmm. Uh, Third, when defensive mechanisms are activated, your perceptions of others' behavior is distorted.
2: Mm -hmm. We misread it.
1: We misread it. Which, you know, it seems obvious, but I needed to hear it. Yeah. And then fourth, healthy, loving relationships are healing.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that's really great. So um, I also want to kind of follow up on what you just said about um, seeing Paul as a client. I have too. Um, And when you say client and when I say client in this context, in this group, um, we're talking about a group of professionals who trust each other and who often do trades with each other. I've mentioned that before is a good idea. I think that we need, we need a small tribe of professionals with whom we can work closely and help each other, like work on each other. So um I just wanted to make that clear.
1: Yes. You know, it's it's very important for any helper mm-hmm. to be able to regulate well. So yeah, You know, if you think about if your perception of others' behavior is distorted, if you have a new client or a new patient coming into your office and you're in a state of fight, flight, or freeze, your perception of their behavior will be distorted from the very beginning. That's so true. So seeing, I've seen Deborah as a client, I've seen Mm -hmm. Paul as a client. I try to get regular body work as well. Mm -hmm. So those things all help me Mm -hmm. have a practice that's more effective, but also more enjoyable for myself.
2: Yeah. And I've seen both of you as a client, too, speaking in the same way. And Paul um, is one of the most safe, calming people I've ever met. Um so let's turn our attention to Paul Wickersham now and uh and talk with him a little bit about polyvagal theory and but also um just life and how how you came to this work and tell us about who you are and what your story is
3: Well I'm a licensed professional counselor and I've been started doing that work in 2001 and About eight years ago, I discovered low energy neurofeedback. Um, Started working for a chiropractor here in town who had a neurofeedback system. I got trained, learned how to use it, and found that it was actually very beneficial to my counseling practice. And then, was very interested in part of the procedure where during the session during doing the low energy neurofeedback it's a particular type of neurofeedback Mm -hmm. we're observing to see if there's changes in the body or changes in the reported changes in the mind and we're looking to see um, for a relaxation response is what we usually would refer to it as and then a couple of years after I started doing the neurofeedback, I stumbled across Stephen Porges' videos on YouTube and was fascinated by it and just kind of had an epiphany like, oh, this is what I'm observing when I see people shift gears doing the neurofeedback and
2: shift gears.
3: Yeah. So that. Led to me after a while starting to tell a story to many of my clients about their nervous system and how they have different gears that they can shift to in their nervous system. And sometimes I'll tell them it's probably an oversimplification, but it's it's helpful to think of it as three gears. And there is a relaxation state, there's a stress response state, and then there's a freeze state. And um, depending on the client, I might emphasize that some people get stuck in that stress response state and it's very hard for them to, for their nervous system to move down into a relaxation state. I say down because that's the way the graphic that I look at is mm-hmm. represented. Other people have graphics where it looks like it's at the top of the graphics. Yeah. So, um, but moving into a relaxation state, it can be very challenging for some people and, um, often, when I do neurofeedback, people are—some people are that have lots of anxiety—will be very surprised by actually being in that state. And and it'll, I'll ask them, "Is this a familiar state for you?" And they'll say, "No, I'm not sure I've ever felt like this before."
2: <laughs> like, what is this? Yeah. <laughs> I feel so, calm. Mm. Something must be wrong. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Sometimes they do think something's wrong, and some people will be afraid of. Be, They'll feel anxious about not feeling anxious. Yeah, which is can be a challenge. You know, that we have to work through.
2: That's familiar to me. I think I've felt that. Mm-hmm. But I remember working with you oh several years ago, and at the time, I, I felt like I was recovering from a um, massive adult bullying situation, mm-hmm. and um, I had been scanning a lot. So I, if I was out in town, I was looking around myself and. You know, just making sure I was safe, kind of in a hypervigilant way. Mm-hmm. And I remember that went away. Like I stopped needing to do that after a handful of sessions with the lens. Mm-hmm. So what happened to me when I stopped needing to scan?
3: Well, the way I understand it is that you had your nervous system had gotten kind of stuck into a stress response state, Mm -hmm. maybe at a fight or flight level, maybe not quite that, that stress, not that, that level of intensity, but still in a stress response state. And I probably should say it's normal to go into a stress response state at certain level. I mean, when we, when we want to work or play, it's normal for us to go into a stress response state that's kind of adaptive and helpful and then ideally our nervous system can bring us back down into a relaxation state when the stressor has passed Uh and so I think in your situation you were having trouble re-regulating back down into a relaxation state even though there wasn't the the threat or the stressor in the environment anymore
2: right and like we've talked about I couldn't get myself there through willing it to happen no thinking just relax
1: (laughs) You, you had to reach out to somebody.
2: I had to reach out to somebody. Yeah. yeah. So
1: that, that relaxation state is also referred to as the social engagement state. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm.
2: Right. Because when we're fully in that relaxation state, we don't mind having people around. In fact, we kind of want them around.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. And I think it's one of the most important parts of healing is mm-hmm. reaching out and building relationships with other people Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and it makes it easier to do if you're in fight flight or a stress response state it's very difficult to have healthy relationships
2: it is Mm -hmm. wired to connect uh referring to amy banks's book Um, we are wired to connect and connecting should feel good yes it should feel calming and and even energizing. Easy. And easy.
1: Right, but if you're in a stress response state, it's not easy. Mm-hmm. Right, and you even often, I believe, lose the desire to mm-hmm. interact with other people.
2: Right, that's so interesting. You know, I, I'm a big introvert. I know that about myself. I've always known that. Mm-hmm. I love um, time alone, and and I. I tell people I don't ever get enough of it, but when all of this was going on, this this stuff that I came to you about, um, I remember just wanting to be alone. I remember not being able to tolerate any social activity on the weekend. Like I felt like I wanted to just come in and lock the doors and close the blinds and just be in a cocoon by myself.
3: In the that, way the that. way I understand that is when you're in that stress response state, your nervous system becomes more reactive to sensory data coming in, uh-huh. um, even more reactive to your own thoughts and feelings, and
2: uh-huh.
3: so huh. it it can be more exhausting to deal with the level of stressors that in, in a you know more relaxed state wouldn't maybe overwhelm you like that.
2: Right, more reactive to your own thoughts and feelings. Mm-hmm. That's a really interesting piece of this. So, so if I was in a state of rest and digest or or um what is it social engagement? Yes. I might have a negative thought about myself, but I m- would more easily shrug it off or put it in context.
3: You'd be less re- Sometimes I talk to clients about whether or not you're reacting or responding to the stimuli and Reacting is where there's no thought before, and then responding is where there feels like there's a moment that you have a choice to make about how you respond to things.
2: Mm, there's a pause.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. If I think back to uh, mm-hmm. my experience of being in a stress response state, that makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Much more reactive. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the social engagement state, you become much more thoughtful in a way.
2: Yeah, like less out of control. Yes. Like, I have a moment where I can make a choice. Yeah, I get that.
1: Okay. So in a society that promotes independence and competition, why isn't it a good thing to just stay in that heightened stress response mm. state? I could get more done. I could be <laughs> more competitive. I could be more independent. Yeah. So why not just stay there?
3: Well, it can be very productive in the short term to be in that state. However, in the long term, it can be exhausting and it can take its toll on your health.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that doesn't last. That burst of Mm -hmm. activity and focused Mm -hmm. um, productivity, that's that's. Um, That's a moment. That's a blip for me.
3: Mm -hmm. Right. So, some people stay in that state for quite some time before they kind of burn out and then seek help.
2: Okay.
1: So, talking about burnout, you know, Mm -hmm. we're talking, we've talked about burnout of the therapist or the helper. So, there's a good chance that therapists who are feeling burned out may spend too much time in. These stress states.
2: Right. Like they've gotten stuck there. They don't know how to unwind. I hear people say that on the weekend. I don't know what to do with myself. Mm-hmm. I have all these things on my list that I want to accomplish. I don't know how to leave the list and just be in the moment. So um, this is important why. This is we're talking about um, the nervous system, talking about therapist health, talking about how to be more present um, in the moment. And you've said, it makes us better at attending.
3: Mm -hmm. Makes us more, my clients will often report it after the neurofeedback session, they'll say, I feel like I'm more present here in the room right now. Mm -hmm. I'm more aware of what's going on. They'll often report sensory changes. Like they'll, they'll be aware of more texture in the curtains. At that moment,
2: or yeah,
3: yeah, things like that.
1: Yeah, and mm-hmm. polyvagal theory you know, you read about the connection of the social engagement or of the autonomic nervous system to the muscles of the middle ear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you're in social engagement they become toned so you're able to hear human voices more clearly. Mm -hmm. When you move into a stress response state, those muscles lose tone because they're trying to listen for predator sounds. Mm -hmm. So there are real physiological changes that occur as as you Mm -hmm. shift from one state to the other.
2: So it sounds like in the moment I could appreciate sensory details more easily if I'm in that social engagement, rest, and digest state. Mm -hmm. So um, in a moment, we're going to take a break. Um, But before we do, I want to raise a question about um, therapists and the context in which we all work. Because some of us work in offices that are very safe and nurturing. This is one of them. but some of you out there work in offices that are not safe, not nurturing. You work for an agency. Um, and maybe somebody's monitoring your work, most likely your paperwork, m- monitoring you mm-hmm. for productivity, and you're really not in a safe kind of environment. So after the break, I want to consider what that does to your body and to your bio behavioral state. So uh we'll be back in a moment.
3: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
0: Burnout takes a toll on your effectiveness with clients, patients and students, even your kids. Reconceive brings help for all the gifted helpers out there who want to make a difference. But first need to feel better, more awake and more creative. Deborah Cox and Tracy Maxfield show you a whole new way to think about mental health and the body, offering insight and inspiration to help bring back the vibrancy and joy to your work in the world. If you teach, do therapy, or provide any kind of human service, it's time to reconceive. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. You're listening to Reconceive with Deborah Cox and Tracy Maxfield. Have a question for Deborah, Tracy, or their guests? Join us on the show at 888-346-9141. That's 888-346-9141. Now back to Reconceive.
1: We're back to Reconceive with our guest, Paul Wickersham, helping us talk about using polyvagal theory in our work with people and also his work doing neurofeedback. So welcome back to the show. We want to know a little bit more about the LENS, the low energy neurofeedback system that you use. So can you tell us a little bit about how you think it's working with your clients?
3: So how far back to go? So neurofeedback has been around since the 1960s. There's many different approaches and techniques. Many of them are what what, people who do what I do often call traditional neurofeedback. And it's kind of an operant operant conditioning type of Mm -hmm. neurofeedback. The lens is different than that. We actually um, are providing real-time neurofeedback to the nervous system in a sense reflecting back to the nervous system what it's doing in real time Mm -hmm. and it's fascinating the body seems to be able to use that information then to figure out how to regulate itself better and very often i will have people have a relaxation response in the session and their nervous system will shift into that relaxed ventral vagal social engagement state that we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. It's not the only thing that I think neurofeedback does. I do think it probably is stimulating some neuroplasticity and um, new neural connections uh, as well. And maybe even seems to help with healing in some cases, but the most obvious and noticeable change is this shift in the nervous system into that relaxation gear. Yeah.
2: Mm -hmm. And you've even, caught me coming in between sessions and you've read something on my face, or I don't know, you pick up on something mm-hmm. and say, you want to hold these. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so you, you hand me the two little electrode things. And, yeah. um, and I guess the last time you did that, you, you took a, a my you took my temperature somehow mm-hmm. that's part of your machine
3: it, That's a different yeah. machine. It's okay. a skin temperature biofeedback device. Oh, okay. okay. But um, it works on very similar kind. It's feeding live information back to your body. And so it works in the same way. There's many different types of biofeedback. Neurofeedback is one type of biofeedback. And most of them are involved with feeding information back to the body in mm-hmm. some way that the body can use that to better regulate itself. So that was skin temperature biofeedback. That was,
2: yeah. And I was amazed that you... You said, I don't know, my temperature was low. Mm -hmm. I don't remember the number that Mm -hmm. you said, but then I immediately started warming up. Mm -hmm. I mean, within seconds. Mm -hmm. And I could feel the shift taking place. Mm -hmm. I didn't know I was cold. I didn't know I was nervous or on edge, but I most certainly was. Mm
1: -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what you saw when you encountered Deborah that morning and you thought, okay, she... She needs some neurofeedback.
3: Well, part of it was from what you told me, but part of it was observations as well. I remember your face was flat. And so there wasn't a lot of emotional expression coming out of your face, which is one of the things that happens when we go into a stress response state.
2: Okay.
3: And then once, um, once. I do neurofeedback or even biofeedback with somebody and they shift gears. It's pretty amazing how rapidly their face relaxes. Mm -hmm. The smile starts to pop on your face in between words. Mm -hmm. These muscles under the eyes relax and you start to have more emotional expression out of your face.
2: Yeah.
3: And um, usually uh, eye contact will be low with somebody who's in a stress response state. And then as soon as they shift gear, the gaze becomes kind of effortless and and Mm -hmm. comfortable, whereas before it might have felt awkward. Mm
1: -hmm. Have you gotten better over the years using the lens at noticing these changes in facial expressions?
3: Very, very much so. I had gotten better before I even discovered the the polyvagal theory, but then once I started following some of Stephen Porges' work, then I you know, I could see where you were talking earlier about the shift in the, the muscle in the ear that changes the tone that you're listening to. And I'll even have people in the session, they will tell me that, oh, yeah, a minute ago, that traffic sounded real loud out there. Now I can hardly even hear it. And (laughs) yeah, yeah. So, So there's, Lots of things that we can observe for oftentimes people will feel like it's easier to take a deep breath and like a weight has been taken off of their chest. Uh-huh. Um, sometimes people's stomach start growling after the neurofeedback.
1: Oh,
2: yeah, like a shift in, <laughs> in your
1: work. Right, right. And the vagus nerve, the, you know, the primitive vagus nerve innervates most of your organs of digestion. So. Uh-huh. It makes sense that yeah. when you state shift, that you would have changes in the organs of digestion.
2: That they would be working more efficiently,
1: right? Right. If you're in social engagement, then you're focused on internal demands or homeostasis. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the problems of staying in a stress response state. You never focus on internal demands. You're always focused on what's going on in the environment yeah. like when you're talking about these unfriendly or unkind places that therapists have to work
2: yes thank you um and i've worked in these places before i mean we all Me have to pay our dues early in our careers and we we work for these big agencies or um, school districts or, you know, other other places where there's a hierarchy and, and somebody's in charge of you. <laughs> somebody's going to try to look at you and see how productive you've been for the month. And did you do all your paperwork? Very inherently untherapeutic milieu mm-hmm. for a therapist to work in. It's kind of ironic. Mm-hmm. Um, like I remember being in really ugly rooms. I was working in uh, the Dallas public schools and doing family therapy in the evenings at the um, school-based clinic. And I had to work in this awful brown room with no window and the air was stuffy and it was like the worst experience. And I remember thinking, you know, I, I am not at my best in here. Mm -hmm. I need some color, a breeze, something to look at. And so, you know, I brought a plant the next week or something and that, just that the mm-hmm. presence of the plant kind of calmed me down so yeah so thinking about what are the polyvagal implications of working in a really poor environment under stimulating or mm-hmm. or predatory
3: it would make I think it would make me much more likely to be in a stress response state which would make it difficult for me to do my work more difficult for me to do my work um and you know, I, I remember those kinds of environments as being almost threatening and feeling unsafe. Mm-hmm. Um, not sure if I was going to be evaluated in a way that would, you know, be critical. And then it would send me into a stress response state and it felt like that could happen almost any time. Yeah. Um, and I sure do wish I would have known more about the polyvagal theory at that time and actually un- begin to understand that there are things that I can do to help myself feel safer um, in the environment that I'm in. Yeah. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So the lens lens machine is fantastic because, and I'm speaking from personal experience, because it works very quickly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But what Paul, I believe, is talking about is what Stephen Porges talks about. Mm -hmm. There are things that you can do to influence your Primitive nervous system or your stress response, such as bowing your head, breathing out longer than you breathe in, Mm -hmm. vocalizations like singing, like singing, listening to prosodic music, Mm -hmm. especially with a a female voice. Mm -hmm. So it's a higher pitch. So, there are things that you can do to influence your biobehavioral state that are easy to do. Yeah. Such as breathing out and vocalizing. All you have to do is extend your phrases when you're talking a little bit, and it'll slow your heart rate down.
2: You just keep talking and keep adding and, and just add another word and add another word, and then. I've got to remember to do that.
1: Me too. Uh, some people I've seen are very practiced, very good at it. Yeah. I'm, I'm working on it.
2: Yeah, yeah. All of those things sound like what a good church experience might be.
1: Yes. Bowing. and. Yeah, they're and the healing. religious practices mm-hmm. that come from going to church. So uh-huh. aside from any religion, those practices will help you calm down.
2: So practitioners who are working in these negative or aversive or um, odious environments um, might practice some of those things to help themselves survive that situation and be be better able to attend to their clients Mm
3: -hmm. absolutely move, move themselves into a state of safety inside of their body yeah sometimes i tell my clients that you know with the neurofeedback, but also I'll talk about these practices that you can do to help yourself in between sessions. And, and I'll say that, you know, what we're doing is you're going to actually feel safer inside of your own body.
2: Mm. That goes with, um, I I was talking about Hillary McBride. I'm reading her book, The Wisdom of Your Body and feeling safer in your body. Sounds like what she would say about how your body is good and it's your friend and it's trying to tell you things and it's trying to guide you and it's okay to listen to it and it's okay to help it be more comfortable because it's you, your body is you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love that. Mm
1: -hmm. But in the, in the past, you know, intelligence was thought of as something separate from your body, Mm -hmm. you know, bringing your personal experiences in to, you know, the idea or conversation about intelligence is kind of taboo, right? We're a very cognitive society. So when people feel a stress response, quite often, they try to think their way out of it. Mm -hmm. But thinking has minimal influence on your primitive nervous system and your stress response. Right. So you can think until smoke comes out of your ears, (laughs) but it probably won't move you out of that stress response.
2: Right. Right. You did an imitation of a psychotherapist trying to do that yesterday.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right. I I was imagining myself as a psychotherapist thinking because Deborah and I've been reading an article on uh, feelings of
2: um, fear of incompetence,
1: fear of incompetence, not
2: incontinence, (laughs) right?
1: So if you're going to a therapist who has this fear of incompetence, which they keep secret. Yeah. Then they're in a stress response and they're like probably in the background of their mind thinking I'm not going to be able to help you very much.
2: Right. Calm down, god damn it. Calm down. <laughs> I'm incompetent, so you're screwed. Right.
1: Exactly. <laughs> How
2: does that make you feel?
1: <laughs>
2: yes, our culture um is geared around cognition, and we have come to prize this objective thought, this idea of objective thought, as if there is such a thing, to the the detriment of our awareness of ourselves as a body. And so this permeates our whole culture, certainly the educational systems in which we are trained to do this work. It permeates psychotherapy itself.
1: Oh, yeah. So a lot of things in mental health, Practices, you know, are contradictory to being ab- able to help people more easily, mm-hmm. which is is one of the big reasons work like lens and EMDR, which I think both of you do. Mm-hmm. This new information is helping speed up the recovery of clients. Yeah. So it can happen very quickly. Mm-hmm. Right.
2: Right. I think you said, Paul, that um, sometimes people will say, I don't want to do the lens. I just want to talk. Mm -hmm. And can you say (laughs) you said that's disappointing to you, right?
3: Mm, I suppose. I mean, sometimes talk therapy is is fine and it works really well. And um, but I do sometimes I prefer to do the neurofeedback in combination with some talk therapy Mm -hmm. because it does seem to move. Faster, it seems to be easier from the EMDR point of view. It seems to to widen that window of tolerance for people, so that they're able to tolerate more, you know, disruption while they're doing, going through the EMDR.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: In fact, Lynn Oaks, the guy that invented the lens, used to go to the international EMDR conference and promote it the lens because they go together so well.
1: Mm-hmm. So. yeah. Yeah, I love that. Do you still use both in your practice? Yes.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: You're talking about thinking your way out of out of a stress response state, and that's not – you can't really talk yourself out of it very effectively. However, there is one thing that you might do that's cognitive in one of those environments that's odious, as you say, <laughs> and, and that is – try to avoid telling yourself scary stories about <laughs> things because that is one thing that cognition can do to get you into a stress response state is telling yourself scary stories. Right. So.
2: Like remembering mm-hmm. something awful or, or thinking, you know, I could really commit a, a faux pas mm-hmm. of some sort and dwelling.
3: And, and you were talking earlier about how in a stress response state you're perception becomes distorted and so you might be more likely to interpret the environment is even scarier than it actually is Mm -hmm. when you're in that stress response state
1: right that's why i added Mm -hmm. comfort along with safety because feeling uncomfortable can be interpreted as danger Mm -hmm. Yeah. so seek comfort seek safety Stephen Porges says seeking safety is a neural exercise.
2: Right. Mm -hmm. What would make me more comfortable right now?
1: Exactly. That's an important question for therapists to ask themselves or any helper.
2: Yes. Sometimes I ask myself, what would Carrie do? And Carrie is my friend. (laughs) Carrie Forbes McCorkadale. Hi, Carrie. Is... uh, in Lake Charles, Louisiana, and she she's my behaviorist friend. She's very very practical in the therapy that she practices and, you know, kind of kind of cognitive, but I mean, she's brave. She is one of my bravest friends and she'll just walk right into the situation and know what to do. So I hold Carrie in my heart and I walk into <laughs> scary situations and think of her. Um so I know we've got to take a, another break here in uh, just a moment, but when we come back I want to hear more about your story, Paul, how you how you got here, the twists and turns that led you to this work. Cause I know you you started out, you know, studying different things and mm-hmm. you you've had a, a winding path mm-hmm. like like mm-hmm. we have.
1: And if we can remember, I want to know more about the lasting effect of lens treatments. Mm.
2: Yeah. Oh, it's cumulative and stays with you. Yes. Yeah. Great. We'll be back soon. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN.
0: Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Burnout takes a toll on your effectiveness with clients, patients, and students, even your kids. Reconceive brings help for all the gifted helpers out there who want to make a difference, but first need to feel better, more awake, and more creative. Deborah Cox and Tracy Maxfield show you a whole new way to think about mental health and the body, offering insight and inspiration to help bring back the vibrancy and joy to your work in the world. If you teach, do therapy, or provide any kind of human service, it's time to Reconceive.
1: It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com
0: You're listening to Reconceive with Deborah Cox and Tracy Maxfield, Have a question for Deborah, Tracy, or their guests? Join us on the show at 888-346-9141. That's 888-346-9141. Now back to Reconceive.
2: We're back to Reconceive with our guest, Paul Wickersham, helping us talk about polyvagal theory and uh, lens neurofeedback and his practice and, um, Something you said recently about how thoughts change with the, with the lens you, in your clients, you notice their thoughts change or you even ask them mm-hmm. about the quality of their thoughts and how they change.
3: Mm-hmm. So lens is interesting. I often do two second runs. Some people need longer than that, but that's usually where I start. And after each run, Um, I usually stop and ask them to give me some feedback on any changes that they've noticed in their body, such as release of tension in muscles or anything else. Then I'll also ask them if they've noticed any changes in their thoughts or their mind, such as the pace of their thoughts. And people are often surprised at that moment. Some people will not notice anything, you know, at that point, but a lot of people will, and they'll, they'll, be surprised and say, "Oh yeah, I don't have as many thoughts going right now." And I say, "So how many how many thoughts do you have at one time?" I say, "It's only like two or three now, whereas before it seemed like there were step. My thoughts were stepping all over each other." Yeah. And then my favorite story. This was early. This was one of the first people I ever worked with. But he, we did one two second run, and he just looks at me, and goes, "Wow, <laughs> it's like all my thoughts are in single file instead of all of them trying to get through the door at the same time." So, <laughs>
2: I love that. And I know what that feels like. <laughs> All of the thoughts trying to get out the door at the same time. Mm-hmm. That's a stressful thought. It's like, I don't know where to start. I have too many things to do. I can't land on one. And and I remember thinking um, after meditating regularly for about a year that um, I didn't have any thoughts. Mm-hmm. And I remember worrying like, Am I losing my creative edge? There's nothing in my head. I'm just sitting here. I'm just sitting here staring at the wall and there's nothing to think. But maybe that was a positive change. Mm
1: -hmm. Sounds great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sounds great. And you mentioned scary stories. Do you notice that it changes people's negative conditions Mm -hmm. as well?
3: One of the things that I, I... assess for i do an assessment before we begin neurofeedback uh comes from the oaks labs people that developed a system that i use and it's a it's just a an assessment of cognitive dysregulation or not cognitive nervous system dysregulation symptoms and one of them is worry so i'll ask people how much how much of the time do you have a problem with worry i have them rank rank that on a scale, and. Um, very quick it's one of the first symptoms usually for most people to start responding to the neurofeedback it's their mind starts to quiet down there's less worry there's less predicting negative outcomes in the future or worrying about worst case scenarios
1: mm-hmm.
3: and i often ask people you know do you worry more about things in the future or things in the past and some people are future worriers some people are past worriers mm-hmm. i like to enhance their awareness huh. that way and some people worry about both some people you know they they think about conversations they've had and wish they would have said something different. So they're past worriers. Oh,
2: I see, and, yeah. And rumination.
3: Rumination, yeah. And so, but it's very common with the neurofeedback for that to quiet down. In fact, I tell people that um, from what I've read is in the early days, in their 60s, when they were doing neurofeedback, they'd actually use it as a way to help people learn how to meditate because you can sometimes get completely quiet after a neurofeedback session.
1: Uh-huh. Which sounds like what mm-hmm. you were feeling after you did that meditation. Yeah. yeah. And one of the trickiest things about meditation is
3: you Till you get to that place of quiet, you don't really know exactly what it is you're trying to accomplish. Right. And so the neurofeedback can kind of give you a little bit of a shortcut there.
2: Yeah. Then, yeah. You,
3: know, then you know
2: what you're trying to do after, right. after that. Yeah. I had been meditating a while when I mm-hmm. came to see you. So it didn't, it didn't alarm or confuse me. But I remember going in to look in the mirror mm-hmm. because you said my face looked different. Mm-hmm. And it did. Mm-hmm. Like, I could see it. Mm-hmm. I could see like... a a relaxation it almost looked like it fell my face (laughs) fell but I think that's because I was used to being um, on heightened alert with my face Mm -hmm. like always being socially ready to present you know to have a certain Mm -hmm. look on my face to smile
3: Mm -hmm. rather than being more spontaneous maybe yes Mm
2: -hmm. Uh uh-huh like I admire those people who say they have a resting bitch face. Mm-hmm. I would love to have a resting bitch face, just to be so just unself-conscious, you know, and be able to just relax. And if you don't like the look on my face, then too bad.
1: <laughs> Stephen Porges talks about being in social engagement mode as more expansive. Mm-hmm. You have more options, more flexibility. Mm-hmm. All of those things.
3: Well, when the face relaxes, it actually makes it easier for other people to engage with you.
1: You look safe to approach. You look safe to approach. Which is important if you're a helper. Yes, Mm -hmm. it
2: is. Yeah. Well, so can we hear a little more about your story of what, how do you think it started that you came into this field?
3: Well... I mean, going all the way back, I've always had anxiety as long as I remember. I now suspect that it has to do with a fall I took when I was very young and I hit my head and I think I've had anxiety ever since that moment. Mm-hmm. Um And when I was college aged, my mom really wanted me to go to school at 18 and up to college. And so I did. And, but I, about mid, semester, I would start having panic attacks. And so I Mm -hmm. just quit going to classes. And of course, Mm -hmm. I failed. And she was very determined that I go to school. And so I tried it again. (laughs) And the same thing happened again the next year. And then a few years later, I tried one more time. And it wasn't quite as bad, but it still wasn't good. And so I decided school wasn't for me. I moved to Florida and lived on the beach, which I actually found was quite healing, uh-huh. I also found a psychologist there that helped kind of to teach me learn how to manage my anxiety. And so, um, I, I didn't really, it didn't really get any better, but I was able to kind of cope with it better. And so
2: you understood uh, it.
3: I understood it. Um, wasn't quite as freaked out about it. And then he gave me some techniques. I actually started breathing techniques uh-huh. that early. So, um,
2: you start knowing that you were smarter than it appeared.
3: Um, yeah so i went back to school in Mm -hmm. in florida and actually was very very successful at the community college there and became like the president of the honor society things like that Uh and up until that time i didn't think i was very smart because i'd flunked out of college three times you can't be very smart it's demoralizing (laughs) yeah Yeah. and so i did really well and then i actually transferred to one of the top universities in the country Mm -hmm. and was very successful there um
2: you went to northwestern
3: yeah and then i came back to Springfield here, um, after that for family reasons and, um, and I didn't know what I wanted to do coming back to Springfield. Mm -hmm. And so it was actually friends of mine that kind of encouraged me to try counseling. And so I did. And I found that to be a very therapeutic experience going through that program.
1: Yeah.
3: All this time i still have anxiety but i'm getting better at living with it and it really wasn't until about eight years ago that a colleague of mine tried to persuade me for a year to go try this neurofeedback and i'd kind of poo-poo it and say "Ah, oh, no
1: I'm,
3: you know that sounds weird or something and so um and finally i did it and it was about the third or fourth session and all of a sudden i'm going
1: i wonder if this is what
3: it's like not to have anxiety
1: oh. <laughs> after wow. three or four sessions, that's profound. <laughs> uh-huh.
3: yeah, um, and the first time it happened, it didn't last very long. It kind of wore off after a couple of hours or so. And that happens. But what we were looking for is each session is for us to get longer and longer periods of time of kind of a reprieve from the symptoms. Mm-hmm. And then in most cases, we do expect the results to be enduring. Um, don't quite say the word permanent, because if you have a really stressful event or you get sick or or bump your head, Um, you can have a regression of the symptoms. But what's interesting is I've had people come back after two years, maybe they bumped their head and they started having anxiety again. And um, we do one lens session. It's like their body kind of remembers and and then they're fine after that. Mm -hmm. They just need a booster. They just needed a reminder. Yeah. That's awesome.
2: Yeah. And, you know, my favorite part of your story has to do with this academic failure And, you know, what you maybe thought of yourself or or Mm. how you felt about yourself, um, because I think that a lot of people have that experience of Mm -hmm. feeling not very bright or feeling like they're just academically not going to be successful.
3: So after, you know, failing college three times, I got to that community college in Florida and um, I was making A's in every class I was in the honor society i was in student government i was Mm -hmm. having all these kinds of successes involved in all these extracurricular activities i still didn't think i was smart you know all of this evidence coming in that maybe maybe i am smart enough you know and um for some reason you know i i just could it did i didn't register
2: yeah
1: well i talked about Mm -hmm. this Mm -hmm the stress response skewing your perception of others, but it sounds like it may have distorted your perception of yourself. I think so.
2: And that makes me wonder about trying to learn in um, a certain biobehavioral state, like, do we feel dumb? Because we're not able to process Mm -hmm. information as readily when we're in a fight or flight or freeze state and how many kids are chronically in those states and thinking that they're not smart. Mm
1: -hmm. Do you ever notice that with your clients? Do, do, Do people ever talk to you about their cognition improving?
3: I would say yes. I mean, I don't know that they put it in quite those terms because they're, they're, trained and they're lay right, people, but right. I mean I'll have people tell me that they've that's the first time they've felt creative in years. Yeah.
1: yeah.
3: Um, I'll have people come in and tell me like, oh for some reason I was just able to go and organize all the closets. I haven't been able to do that for years.
1: <laughs> yeah. Which is thinking uh, Which you is have yeah. to think yeah. if you get to organize so right. that, mm-hmm. that's proof right there.
2: Right. Mm-hmm. It sounds like maybe we're more able to access a flow state even.
1: When mm-hmm.
2: we are in that rest and digest and, and mm-hmm. social engagement mode.
3: Very present in the moment. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and I
2: mean, when you're present, you're observant.
3: One of the things that I assess for, you know, is organization. How how much of the time do you have a problem with staying organized in your life? And, mm-hmm. and very often people will report that that score improves after. After the neurofeedback. Mm
1: -hmm. So so this is good news for really everybody, because these techniques, EMDR, lens, a lot of the new things that therapists are using are very rapid and enduring.
2: Yeah. And we just have a couple of minutes left in the show, but I'm just wondering what's the big takeaway for therapists or what do you wish therapists of all stripes um, could take away if it was just one piece of this.
3: That's very helpful to understand what regulated state your nervous system is in and your client, and that by learning how to work with that yourself, you're able to be more present and a better therapist for your client, but you're also able to have an enhanced quality of your own life as well.
2: Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If I live better, I'm going to do better therapy. Mm -hmm. If I feel better, I'm going to do better therapy.
1: Mm -hmm. If I feel better, I will have less burnout. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well,
2: thank you for helping us bring attention back to the body. Mm -hmm. This has been really helpful. Um, And we hope that you'll write to us. We hope that you'll call us. Uh, Send us your stories. Therapy at gmail.com. Uh, next time, we'll be talking to Dr. Doug Shirley about the village of the therapist. So we'll see you soon.
1: Thanks, Paul. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to today's episode of Reconceive. We hope you've learned something today you can use to reconnect and feel better. Tune in next week for more on transforming practice. Until then, have a great week.